Flying back to Dubai from Dar es Salaam in Tanzania the other night, I was treated to an awe-inspiring display in the moonless night sky. Some pilots at night try to trick their body clock by having the flight deck brightly lit, which obscures the stars. Luckily on this occasion my colleague was happy with all the lights dimmed, almost to black, and we sat as if on a thousand kilometre per hour magic carpet, heading northeast, crossing the equator, with the Milky Way extending from our front just left of centre and up over our heads. If you've ever been on a flight deck and seen out the windows, you've probably been unimpressed with the scope of the vista. It's not until you occupy a control seat and move it up and down, forward and aft, so that your eyes line up with the two pea-sized balls designed to ensure all pilots' eyes are in exactly the same spot, despite differing body sizes and shapes, that you experience the full panorama, being able to see right back to the wingtip and beyond. Incidentally, by being exactly in this position and not a centimetre further forward, the manufacturer supposedly guarantees your safety if a large bird decides to come in through the window. The panes of optical glass have flywire sheets of tiny gold fibres invisible to the eye and heated to keep the glass from becoming brittle. If the bird enters, the glass melts and solidifies around the intruder, stopping the whole mess a few centimetres before your very eyes. So they say. It's explanations like these which is how they con pilots to sit only inches from the front of the speeding aluminium dart being assaulted by feathered artillery, lightning bolts, ice and rain which sometimes sounds so heavy you have to shout full voice through the intercom to be heard. We were watching for the Leonid meteoroid shower, expected to be at its best that night as the Earth annually passes through the dust trail left by the 36 kilometre diameter Temple Tuttle comet on its 33-year orbit between Mars and Uranus which would be best seen immediately in front of us in the hours just before dawn. Leonid particles are usually half a millimetre in size and each weigh about 60,000th of a gram. They're doing 71 kilometres a second and to be defined as a shower we'd have to see 13 an hour of the fiery pinstripes or roughly one every four minutes. For it to be defined as a meteor storm we'd have to see one a second. Above us was my favourite constellation, Pleiades, a cluster of stars in the constellation Taurus, including six bright stars, originally called the Seven Sisters, the seventh brightest star apparently faded from sight since the original sightings. Apparently 415 million light years away, on a clear night on a remote coastal beach with binoculars, you can see about 20 stars in the light fuzzy smudge. To the Easter planet, probably Mercury, was rising, regularly flashing red and white just like the lights of another plane and often reported as a UFO as its light spectrum is bent around the Earth coming to us through the dust-laden atmosphere about 10 minutes before the planet is visible over the horizon. Flying over Africa provides pilots with specific challenges. For hours you fly over hostile country, sometimes hours from suitable airports. At night, the lights of humanity can be seen clinging to the white and blue Nile rivers as they converge in Khartoum, and Snake as the massive joined river system winds its way to the Mediterranean in Egypt. At Luxor, the distinctive horseshoe bend can be spotted for 200 kilometres away. Air traffic control in the region is unreliable as the individual countries seem more interested in collecting income from overflying rights rather than providing the service we need. Much of the radio is on the congested, hissing, high frequency rather than the more reliable VHF. And in Mogadishu's case, with troubles in Somalia, the controllers occupy a desk in Nairobi centre. Often there's no one there to answer us and we imagine them having a coffee on the other side of the room as they chat to their Kenyan hosts, only pausing to write out an invoice to our airline when they hear our plaintive unanswered calls on the squawk box in the corner. The modern airliner has three independent inertial navigation systems that measure every movement of the aircraft from the airport gate where we confirm the exact starting point location by means of the latitude and longitude printed on a board just outside the cockpit window of every parking bay. 
Many times a second, the mixed position from the navigation systems is compared with the two onboard GPS systems that are continually triangulating their position from the overflying satellites. The result is an outstanding accuracy as we fly along the upper airway routes. Under radar, we adhere to the routes and marvel as we cross opposite direction traffic only a thousand feet above or below us. In the Airbus, you can even hear the whooshing sound of the other aircraft. And at night we flash our headlights to acknowledge our presence like Alpha drivers did in the 1960s. Sometimes we mutter over the radio Australia's number one contribution to world aviation. G'day. However, in Africa or across the oceanic airspace, we can never be sure the controllers haven't made a mistake with the other aircraft's altitude clearance. In these places we fly one mile right of track to increase our separation in case of an altitude error and broadcast our positions to each other on a third VHF radio frequency. Pilots are always playing a mental game of three-dimensional chess, keeping track on nearby traffic, monitoring the primary VHF frequency as well as the secondary one which is dedicated to the emergency frequency. When you have a third one going, wearing a headset on one ear, you often have to stop talking to visiting flight attendants in order to decipher the chatter, leading them to think that we are really a little slow. If all else fails, we rely on the traffic collision avoidance system developed from the first Gulf War, in which planes can talk to each other and alert us to any intruders who will enter a 45-second proximity bubble. We are trained to immediately respond to the system by abruptly climbing or descending, assuring that even if the other guys are out to get us, we should miss them by 300 feet. That's why you should always wear your seatbelt, even when it's smooth. Earlier in the day, sitting in the hotel in Dar es Salaam, I had downloaded and read the latest communique from the world's top brains at the IPCC, who have proved beyond doubt that the climate is changing. Just how much man has caused this is still in debate, but there's no doubt that the climate is changing and we have to change our ways. Sitting in the front of an aeroplane burning about five and a half tonnes of fuel per hour, you have time to think of the damage you're causing to the planet. While aviation causes about 2.7% of the world's carbon emissions compared to 15% from livestock, there's evidence that the white condensation clouds left behind us reflect a percentage of the sun's incoming radiation, which might be helping reduce global warming. In the days following 9-11, when there were no aeroplanes flying about the USA, variations in high and low temperatures showed an increase of 1.1 degrees Celsius. So, grounding the world's aviation fleet may show a decrease of 30% in carbon emissions, but may accelerate the warming we're all worried about. As John Howard found out, Australians are worried about the environment and want to see action, making Tim Flannery Australian of the Year for his defining book, The Weathermakers, was a good start, but real changes are required. Dubai's ruler decreed last October that from January 2008, all new buildings must meet green international standards in construction and design, minimising water and energy use. Just do it, seems to be his motto. His plans include making Dubai the world showcase for self-sustainability and to help his enlisting a leading Australian expert in green architecture. Australia could have easily grabbed such a role when they held the technological advantage in solar development in years gone by. Sadly, the brain drain to the US occurred and Australia appears to be doing nothing. What is hard to take, looking from the outside, is Australia's ability to grab defeat from the jaws of certain victory and fail to become a world leader in new technologies that could help save the planet. Sitting in my ergonomic pilot seat, surrounded by the 135 computers controlling the million or so parts that make up my aeroplane, looking down at the planet, I came up with an idea I'd like to share. In the late 1940s, the energy-efficient transistor was developed, winning its discoveries, the 1956 Nobel Prize for Physics, and changing the world ever more. No longer would power-hungry valves have to be warmed up before use in radios, televisions and computers. 
1958, the trick to putting six transistors together on an integrated circuit board was discovered. Gordon Moore's law that sees the doubling of the number of transistors that can be placed per unit area every 1.5 years has held true since 1960. And the company he founded, Intel, has made it a mind-boggling art form. Our childhood memory of the $5 tranny, which allowed us to carry our new music from the local radio station around in our pockets, was the byproduct. But who kicked it off? It was the US military who placed a monumental order for transistors for use in radios, radars and weapons systems that brought down the cost of the transistor from millions of dollars per unit to a matter of cents. Today, the thing that holds back wider use of solar power is battery technology. And whilst the latest announcement of a Japanese car battery that can really make electric vehicles a viable alternative, I contend that Australia can make a mark similar to the development of the transistor. Wouldn't it be great if the federal government decided to treat the need for sustainable solar power captured for the sun at its point of use with a vigour normally reserved for time of war? Even with the announcement from the founders of Google that they're throwing 500 million US dollars into research into solar arrays, upper level wind farms and geothermal, it still leaves an area for exploitation by Australia. Imagine a sweeping mandate that every streetlight in Australia must be replaced by a solar light within two years. The tender for the solar collector and battery technology would attract revolutionary ideas, with the sheer number of units allowing for economies of scale which would drive the cost of components down to previously unimagined levels. The lights would have no requirement for their own power lines. They would come on automatically when conditions required, utilise bright, long-life LEDs and intelligent mirror reflectors. Running at varying levels, they'd be brightest, say from the start of darkness for three hours, then stepping down in intensity every hour until just before dawn, saving energy in case the sun was obscured for a few days. Surely such a mammoth effort, paid and managed by the federal government, using the resources of the states and local governments for the production, assembly and erection of the lights and recycling of old components, would give the country a boost not only in terms of pride and enthusiasm. Australia could lead the world in this technology, selling it worldwide just in the same way that Germany and Belgium own the windmill technology we buy today. Spin-offs could lead to cheap lighting from emerging economies. The IPCC report states that the changing climate will see hotter summers and for southeastern Australia, more droughts and even more bushfires. A mate of mine who flies choppers for Victoria's Country Fire Authority every summer is getting sick of it. Spending weeks on 24-hour reserve away from home, then spending each flying hour bounced around hot, smoky skies in teeth-busting turbulence, using every ounce of his 25-year flying skills to dangle the bucket into ever-dwindling dams, whilst the rotor blades trim the leaves off surrounding trees as he tries to save houses from advancing fires. So what happens when he hangs up his Ray-Bans and green David Clark headset? Australia is so short of experienced pilots... The thought of each bushfire season getting longer and hotter leads many to despair. The ageing volunteer force struggling to keep private property protected, while the public forests are defended mainly by holidaying uni students, which doesn't bode well for the future. Whenever Melbourne has one of those February days with the hot north winds that drive the humidity down and the temperature up, those of us touched by Ash Wednesday 1983 feel uneasy. The winds that took the fire east were forecast to bring the rage to the tiny hamlet of Cockatoo in a matter of hours. What was subsequently learned from that fire was that, when big enough, the fire creates its own wind, sucking the oxygen ahead and all the moisture from the trees in front of it, accelerating its progress. 
The oil in eucalyptus trees actually explodes in horrifying crown fires. Instead of hours, the fire was upon the townspeople in 20 minutes, evaporating 307 buildings and six lives. A year after the fire, I interviewed veteran journalist Mike Edmonds, who was covering the more deadly Beaconsfield fire, jumped a ride on a fire truck and was the first on the scene of the firefighters who'd perished when caught in the blaze. Asking him how my interview would affect him, he went quiet, then softly said he probably wouldn't sleep for three nights. Imagining a world where Ash Wednesday fires are commonplace is just one aspect that makes you think that the problems of global warming can seem insurmountable. Coupled with the tipping point that is peak oil, it can leave you wondering what hope is left. And then you think about the human spirit, how ordinary people can make a difference, and how that, maybe, we'll get through these challenges. It seems like yesterday that I discovered that when faced with tragedy, normal people can step up and make a difference. David, the ex-cop private detective who was a regular on the afternoon show, and I were standing outside radio station 3AW the day after Ash Wednesday. Our job was to sort the thronging public who'd come in response to the station's call for cash, clothing and food. In the irony that is nature, the cool change that had quenched the fires had brought a stiff, cold, southwesterly breeze and the fire's refugees were freezing, most having lost all their clothes along with their houses. A white van pulled up and the Hilton Hotel's manager flung open the door to reveal hundreds of expensive woolen blankets, one taken from each room, to be given to the survivors on the proviso that no one ever knew where they came from, a commitment never broken until now. And then the thing that, when looking down from my cockpit at the lights of Djibouti, gives me goosebumps when I recall it, and makes me think that when pressed, the human spirit can achieve anything. A young mother in an aqua windcheater, dirty jeans and bare feet, came down Latrobe Street with a tiny girl at her side who was carrying a much-loved soft doll. The mother was tightly holding a crunched-up $10 bill and a can of baked beans. We took the food and sent her inside to reception to pay the money and get a receipt. Over a million dollars cash came in the front door that day. They walked back up the street, then stopped. The daughter pulled her mum low and whispered something to her. She then left her mother, standing there, walked back to us, handed David her doll to give to a bushfire victim, turned and walked back to join her mum. Two tough blokes and we couldn't speak. No matter what nature has to throw at us, it's the human response that stops you in your tracks every time. <laughs>